So we are in the season of Advent, as you know. And um, this is Advent week four, Christmas Sunday next week. So Adventus is a Latin word meaning coming or arrival. It translates a Greek word, parousia. It's a great word, parousia. Put that in your Greek vocabulary. It means coming, arrival, presence. But more important than the word, you know, the coming or the arrival of Jesus is depicted in various ways in Scripture. That's just one of them. You know, it is a wonderful word, though, I just have to say, because uh, in the secular culture of the day, it was a word particularly for an emperor arriving to your city. Isn't that a nice way to view Christ arriving to this broken world? Well, in the pastoral wisdom of the church through the ages since the fourth century, this is a scriptural command, but it's just a pastoral wisdom. We celebrate Advent four weeks prior to Christmas Sunday, or Christmas Day. This year it's a Sunday. And it's a time of preparation. It's preparation for that momentous, redemptive event that we mark on Christmas Day when God the Son was born as a real human baby. And so we put ourselves in the shoes of the Old Testament saints and the Old Testament prophets as they ached and longed for the Messiah to come. You know, it's interesting, you know, we're on the other side of that, but imagine being on the side aching every generation, when would the Christ come? And so that eagerness, that expectation, that hope we see you know, across the birth narratives, Luke in particular, those songs that just radiate, cascade through the nativity story. Or we think of old Simeon. Remember old Simeon or old Anna. And Luke describes them both as waiting, like waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, this single-hearted hope, this devotion of their lives to the coming of Messiah. Like they, every day, it seems, they thought about it. We think of that Isaiah passage that's quoted in the Gospels, you know, talking about John the Baptist, but prepare the way of the Lord. And so that preparation idea, you know, you prepare, you think about it. So we prepare ourselves for Jesus's first coming. We put ourselves in their shoes, but in addition to that, Advent also focuses on not only the first coming, but also the second coming. And we can't really appreciate the significance of Jesus's first coming without also thinking about his second coming, not in humility, not in debasing himself or in weakness, but in, in glory and authority and power. And so really the word parousia in the New Testament, in the, when it's used in its theological sense, ordinarily refers to Jesus' second coming. The great white throne of judgment, the new heavens and the new earth, resurrection day, all of that. So Advent is also a time when we prepare ourselves for that day. But that leads to a third sense in which we use Advent. Historically, the third sense in which we use Advent is that we think of Christ coming now, today, to my heart, to my church, right now. Both to a church and both to individuals. It's very personal. 
In fact, the word parousia in the New Testament, at least once I found, is used for God coming in judgment to his people now. So in addition to uh, the idea of judgment and discipline is a thought of Jesus coming now for your salvation. Those go together to offer you the free gift of the forgiveness of sins, of new life. And so we prepare, we fill our minds with the gospel, we engage in self-examination, we seek to repent of unique in unique ways of things God brings to mind. We believe the gospel in ways maybe we haven't been believing the gospel as Jesus offers to us himself to us now. And so the hymns, if you notice, the Christmas carols today, they focused on that third sense in which Jesus comes. I mean, just think of lift up your heads, ye mighty gates. I love that hymn. And it has one of the stanzas is fling wide the portals of your heart. Make it a temple set apart from earthly use for heaven's employ adorned with prayer and love and joy. Fling it wide. Or hark the herald angels sing. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to give them second birth. Or think also of, yeah, I want to use a different, stanza three is of a little child a little town of Bethlehem, how silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Beautiful, he's coming week after week. He comes to us. Well, we're doing a Christmas Advent season uh, series on Christmas and Revelation, and one of the main reasons I want to do that was I wanted to preach on Revelation 3, 14 through 22, this third sense of Jesus' coming to us. It's been good for me in my own self-examination. I hope it is for you. When we think of repentance, I've liked what one author said, writing about Advent, is we take, we take to heart what what, let's see, what, ah, uh, yeah. I'm having trouble reading my writing. Hold on a second. Ah, uh, yeah, we take, <laughs> I got it now. We take our heart off of what drives, defines, and delights us and puts them on Christ. Log that in your head. What drives, defines, and delights you? Let me think that through. Let me put it on Christ. Well, Revelation 3, 14 through Uh, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, and you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, And neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Let me translate that a different way. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I like that a lot better. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve for your, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and the grass withers and the flowers fade in this good word. It's a warning, but it has so much grace to it. It endures forever. So you recall that John and uh, Jesus instructs John to write seven letters. In fact, all of Revelation is framed as a great big letter. But there's seven particular letters written to leading churches in Asia Minor. And he writes them to encourage and exhort them in ways they each respectively need due to their own historical situation and context and also the particular struggles they are going through to be faithful, to bear witness. And at the same time, these letters, the intent of them would be to circulate. That all the churches in the region, and really, we read them today, so in the mind of God and to an extent in the mind of John as well would be that they would be read by everybody is that their, their purpose, this purpose and the content of the letters, as well as just the number seven, which is completeness, fullness, indicates that these historical particular churches are also representative churches of the church as a whole, of different conditions we can find ourselves in. And so we find ourselves in the letters. We, Jesus' word to them is also his word to us. And sometimes it's more applicable than at other times. One letter would be more so than another at certain times. And so I, I really think this one is especially pertinent to our culture as we engage Advent. And especially that third sense of Jesus coming now, today. And so I have three points. One is an aspect of Christ the second is an assessment of the church. And the third is an assurance to conquer. So an aspect of Christ, assessment of the church, assurance to conquer. So an aspect of Christ. Verse 14, the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And so John, Jesus tells John to write to the angel of the church of Laodicea. Each letter is written to an angel of that church and we wonder what, it, like, what is he talking about to the angel. And so a couple of interpretations, I'm come, kind of in the middle of these is that um, one is that they are the pastor of the local church. You can translate angel as messenger. And so the pastor bears a unique responsibility for faith, faithfulness and witness of the local church. So he directs it to him and through him to the congregation. There's merit to that. I lean towards this interpretation, however. It could also be referring to real angels. Um, that's how angels consistently used in the vision portions of Revelation. So the point is, it means that there are, there's angelic representation for a local church. You know, have you thought about that? I think that's true. You, you find it in different ways in Revelation. So 
The letter addresses them as well as the local church leader. And it's really an awesome thought that maybe he addresses the church that way to remind them of at least two important truths. One being that their real home isn't this fallen world. They already have representation in heaven. And two, they have heavenly protection and power to resist being conformed to this world and also to reach out to this fallen world in gospel witness. They're not on their own by themselves. Heaven is behind them. And it's really an amazing thing to think that a little church like ours is represented in heaven. It's also amazing to think that as we gather for worship today, the reason we gather for worship today, whether you know it or not, is because fundamentally you are already gathered in heaven in worship, in Christ. So Jesus identifies himself to the church. And as you read the seven letters, you notice he does that for each of the churches. And he takes an aspect or a quality of his self-disclosure to John, which he gave in chapter one, which we looked at last week. He takes an aspect or quality of that description and he uses that or uses a particular facet of that for this particular local church. He doesn't say it all, he says one of them or two of them. And to each of the churches, he uses a different one. And it seems he identifies himself in the way that particular church needs to see him, needs to know him due to their situation, their trials and their temptations. And I love that too. And isn't that how God meets with you when you're in your, even your personal devotion time, that the Holy Spirit draws your attention to a particular aspect of God's character, a description of God that he uses in a practical way in your location situation. And that's what he's doing here for the local church. It makes it very personal within your heartaches, within your hopes. So then the question is, how does the church of Laodicea especially need to see the ascended Jesus? Well, they need to ascend, see the ascended Jesus this way. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. They need to lock into that description of the ascended Christ. So Jesus calls himself the amen. And amen is a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word meaning amen. It's the same. And it comes from a root word meaning firm and strong. So it's used to confirm truth of something said, maybe a curse or maybe a promise. It's used at the end of the books of the Psalter to confirm the praises and prayers of the Psalter. It affirms what's said is true and trustworthy, firmly established and binding. So sometimes we translate it truly or, or let it be. Jesus defines amen in that description with the next phrase, the faithful and true witness. Really, that's the same thing. So that Dr. Kelly says, in this way, he effectively calls himself the threefold amen. I'm true, I'm true, I'm true. What he says is utterly sure, authentic, rock solid, and therefore to be trusted. 
You take it to the bank because he said it. And in a special way, I like this, that Jesus is referring back to Isaiah 65. In Isaiah 65, God presents himself to Isaiah as the God of truth, which literally is the God of amen. The God of amen. What if you prayed that way? What God says is true, it will come to pass, so it's to be believed, even when I'm struggling to believe it. And it's the same for Jesus here. Jesus is put on the level of the God of amen. In fact, Paul would then say in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus secured all God's promises to you. They are yes and amen. What are those promises? Go to them. They are yes to you. I mean, Christmas proves that Jesus accomplished the promises. We can view Jesus as being born in a manger to get the promises for you. And the reason we know he's established all God's promises towards us is found in the next description. He says, I'm the beginning, the origin, the source of God's creation. And, and that is remarkable. And you may think of, you know, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. By him, all things was, was made. Without him, nothing was made. Or Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He holds it together, he created it, and he redeems it. And that's what he's saying here. Is I'm, the, I'm the agent of the first creation, and I'm the agent of the second creation, which is the new heavens and new earth. I brought it into being, I hold it together, I control it, and I laid down my life to get it. Therefore, what I tell you, I will fulfill. So why does the church in Laodicea especially need to see Jesus this way? What's so relevant about this aspect of Jesus' character for them right now? Now let's wait on that, but that's the question. Let's go to the assessment of the church. An assessment of the church. So, it's a rough one. Uh, This church is the only one of the seven that only gets rebuke. There's no commendation of this church. And, There's a whole lot of grace here, but there's no commendation for them. So Jesus says, I know your works. And the sense then is that, you know, I know that there aren't any works or or nothing worth talking about. They just don't show up. And so then he adds to that, you're not cold, you're not hot, you're just lukewarm. And... Jesus through John shows remarkable knowledge of the city of Laodicea. And I really love that too. Jesus has remarkable knowledge about our city. So Laodicea didn't have its own water supply. And so one neighboring town, six miles away, had medicinal hot springs. And another, 11 miles away, had refreshing cold springs. Laodicea had nothing. 
So the Romans built these aqueducts from the closer, the medicinal hot spring city, all the way six miles to Laodicea. But by the time the hot water traveled through those aqueducts, it arrived to Laodicea lukewarm. And so this phrase, lukewarm Laodicea, was just a way people talked about the city. It's like we would say the birthplace of Elvis or the all-American city. It's just us, it's our city, lukewarm Laodicea. And furthermore, due to the medicinal qualities of the minerals of this now lukewarm water, it could even cause nausea and induce vomiting. Their water supply was difficult. So Jesus is saying, look, you're lukewarm like your city. You don't soothe me like hot water on a cold day. You don't refresh me like cold water on a hot day. I don't like your temperature and I don't like your taste. I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. Which shows that to Jesus, a church has a temperature and a taste. And this church, for Jesus, it was distasteful and disgusting to him. And he's thinking of things like this. You don't have true love for me. I'm just not seeing it. I don't see zeal for prayer among you. I don't see real meditation on the word in you. I don't see a real devotion to the fellowship. I'm not seeing care for the sick. I'm not seeing true generosity to the poor. I'm not seeing an all-out fight against sin. I'm not seeing a resistance to the squeezing, conforming nature of the culture. I'm just not seeing it. I'm not seeing a true, you know, wholehearted witness to the lost. I'm seeing no real signs of spiritual life. There's no real obvious, solid, good fruit among you. Just not seeing it. You're just like your city. You're just, you're just lukewarm. You've absorbed the feel and the flavor of your city. And not in a good way. There's a sense in which we need the feel and flavor of a city to reach into our city. But here it's, you haven't penetrated the city, the city has penetrated you. It's really interesting that this is the only letter where there's no mention of any persecution. And so, like, there's no real threat. And so, we just kind of wonder, have they just not hit anybody's radar? Because there's really nothing different. They're another social club in the city, like the trade guilds. You know, the city looked at them and said, you know, you express the highest values of our town. I mean, you're hardworking. You, you know, you, you're philanthropic. All those good things. But I'm nothing really raises the alarm. Well, to make matters worse, Jesus says the church thinks she's fine. That's the unsettling part, really, to me. He says, uh, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. I need nothing. One of the things I most appreciate by my dad later in life, I put that in the obituary, was... His favorite verse became John 15, 5. Apart from you, I can do nothing. The Christian life is not going from dependence to independence. It's going from a self-satisfied thing that we're independent, that we're utterly dependent. These people are saying, I need nothing. And so you see, Laodicea was a very wealthy city. 
In fact, it was so well off that when this devastating hurricane, excuse me, not a hurricane, but a devastating earthquake hit the city and did this extensive damage, like walls, buildings fell down, the Roman government division of FEMA or whatever offered a program of assistance, financial aid to them to rebuild the city, and they looked at that aid offered to them, and they said, we don't want it. We don't need it. We got it. And they rebuilt their city, and they rebuilt neighboring cities. They were enough. They prided themselves in their financial self-sufficiency. We're not needy like those other cities. We got it. I need nothing. And so this idolatry of wealth and self-sufficiency had really made inroads into the mentality of the church. On the one hand, like to be wealthy, the church would have had to have cooperated and compromised in some ways because the trade guilds offered sacrifices to the emperor. On the other hand, material success and economic prosperity, it's always this subtle, strange effect that it can have on us. You know how that happens when you feel more financially secure. What happens to you and the sense of power and ability to like manage your life makes you feel like you're acceptable with God or the fact that you have a wealth of blessings must indicate that God's pleased with you. But Jesus is saying, look, it's not so. So Jesus says, spiritually speaking, you're exact opposite. You're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Whatever you feel about yourself, that is what you are. If you operate like you don't need Jesus, you are utterly undone. So why does the church need to see Jesus in the way he describes himself? And that's always the chief thing we need today. To, to counter that... Well, at least four reasons I see is that Jesus, one is Jesus is utterly truthful in what he says, and you Laodiceans are dishonest and compromising in what you're saying about yourself. The second would be that, you know, Jesus is the faithful witness, and you are unfaithful witnesses. You're just not, you're not showing the world me. The third is Jesus is alone is self-sufficient and in possession of all things. All wealth comes from him. So he's what you need, not your jobs and money. And the fourth thing is that Jesus begins God's new creation by his resurrection power and you need an in influx of Jesus' resurrection power in your life. At least that. Well, an assurance to conquer, assurance to conquer. So I, want you, I just want you to see all Jesus' grace here. Uh, he gives them time to repent, and every day, I'm so thankful that Jesus is long-suffering with me to give me time to repent. And so he doesn't spew them out. He says, I'm about to. You got time. So he moves them to repent by giving them these gracious promises and unveiling his loving heart to them. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. So again, Jesus shows uh, knowledge of the city. I mean, amazing, more than any of the other letters. They boasted of three big institutions. They had this great banking center. They were a famous textile industry with this black wool. 
and they were a leading medical school, renowned for an eye salve for pink eye and glaucoma. People came for that. It kind of looks like Tupelo, you know? A banking center, textiles, furniture, hospital. I mean, really appropriate, too appropriate. So Jesus says, I counsel you, which I also love. Let me counsel, let me give you counsel for your recovery. Would you buy gold from me? Would you not hoard it up in your bank and think that you're safe and secure, but would you get my gold? It's the only gold that lasts. It's the only gold that's worth anything. Really, in scripture, you think of First Peter. Gold is a way of talking about faith. Faith is so precious to God. You know, your faith to God is so pleasing to him. It's so pleasing that he refines it. So he says, would you get gold refined in fire? Would you view your trials as purifying that precious gift you have? It's gold. Would you buy white garments from me? So Jesus offers white garments. They're walking around in black garments, dark garments. And Jesus says, look, I got, I got pristine, white, pure garments, my own righteousness to clothe you with all the acceptability God would ever want in you, to cover your spiritual nakedness and the darkness of your sin, would you get those garments from me? Would you buy salve for your eyes from me? Your eyes are blind, would you? I give you the Holy Spirit who is that anointed anointment that you, that ointment you need that would Open your eyes to your depravity and your need and see my wonder, beauty, and self-sufficiency. And of course, since I've already said that you're poor and naked and blind, I'm saying you don't have anything to buy these things with. Like, you, can't, you don't got it. And so really, even though he rebukes them, saying you're wretched, poor, blind, and naked, it's also a movement of grace to say, would you recognize that you are naked, poor, wretched, blind, and you need me? It's an Isaiah 55 passage. Come to me, all you who hunger. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Come to me, it's grace. I'm ready to give it to you. Come to me with your blindness. I want your blindness. I want your poverty. I want your nakedness. I want your wretchedness. And just notice that all three things, the gold, the white garments, the eyes, they refer back to chapter one. Jesus had a gold sash. He had hair white as wool. He had eyes like fire. And it's saying, look, I, I come to me. I have those things. I have those things for you. And then Jesus moves on in his grace, amazing. He says, the reason I'm rebuking you so strongly is I love you. I wouldn't rebuke you if I didn't love you. I just wouldn't care. I'd let you go off on your own. The reason I rebuke you, it's a, it's a form of love. It's the grace of warning. I, I'm, I don't want you to be settled in on your comfort and your complacency. I want you to have more. I want you to miss it. Come to me. It's love. And then we get to that very famous promise in verse 20. And that's the one that I think is so beautifully reflected in these Christmas carols. It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And says, what's a tremendous promise. And so on the one hand, their feel and flavor are so disgusting to him that he wants to vomit them out. But on the other hand, he loves them so much, 
He wants to enjoy a long, lingering meal, table fellowship, deep communion, deep, rich conversation with them. He wants to sit and enjoy a Christmas afternoon by the fire with the family, with you. And, and notice this is Jesus not only coming to the church as a whole, but Jesus coming to each professing believer, if anyone. Like we don't hide behind anyone. Like he comes to each one of you. He comes to me. And, and he, he doesn't come timidly tapping uncertainly on the door of our church or in our hearts. He comes as the ascended glorified Lord who's the amen, who's the source of creation and redemption. He comes authoritatively, insistently pounding on the door of our church and on our individual hearts. He wants in. He comes with abounding love for us, both in judgment and in salvation and all of grace. He says to us, like, what's happened? Like, you were, you were so red hot. But now, we enjoyed such rich communion, but now you've, you've put me outside. You've shut me out of your lives. You, I wanna know you, I want you to know me. I want sweet, close, intimate fellowship with you. But whether you're aware of it or not, you've closed the door of your church to me. You've closed the door of your heart to me. And I won't back in. I'm coming back in. Like I, I shed my blood to share a meal with you. And I want to do that. And so in a special way in our Lord's Day worship services, Jesus comes to us and walks down the aisle he arrives. He does so through the word and prayer and the sacrament. And he bids us to see him as the all-sufficient one we need. He counsels us to take stock of how we're embracing our culture and excluding him. He urges us to say, like one of the hymns we sang, Redeemer, come, I open wide. My heart to thee, here, Lord, abide. Let me thy inner presence feel, thy grace and love in me reveal. And this is the kind of repentance and faith Advent is meant to foster. And so we have a wonderful opportunity, you know, as things kind of slow down at some point, to let him assess us and awaken us with his grace. And so we have the final promise, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And what comes to me, you can say so much, but I just love how selfless Jesus is. Like he doesn't guard his turf. I mean, we see that in his earthly ministry that he goes as low as he can, as low as he can. And he retains the same heart of love and humility. He enables us to conquer the pressures of our idolatrous hearts and culture, to empower us to witness to his grace and truth. But grace upon grace, he promises us that we're gonna share his throne with him. Like he moves over and lets us sit with him. He gives us a place to rule in the new heavens and new earth, like the likes of us. The ultimate goal, really, of all that he's doing in the incarnation is the new heavens and new earth with us, with him. 
And who else has that kind of goal for your life? You know, what, what, what idol has that goal for your life? There's none like him. The son of God took on flesh, shouldered the cross to confer on us this kind of kingdom. And this is good news. This is good news. And that's what's going on when he starts it in the manger in Bethlehem. May God add his blessing to you. Amen. Let's stand.